Jaya Radha Madhava Kunjabihari Jaya Radha Madhava Kunjabihari Gopi Jana Sri Vrindavan Dhamma Ki Jai, Mathura Dhamma Ki Jai, Navajit Mayapur Dhamma Ki Jai, Jagannath Puri Dhamma Ki Jai, Gangamaya Javuna Devi Ki Jai, Bhakti Devi Ki Jai, Tulsi Maharani Ki Jai, Samaveta Bhakti Vrinda Ki Jai, All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Garanga. All glories to Sri Prabhupada, Namaham, Vishnu Padaya. Krishna Prasadji, Jalai Sri Mati Bhakti Vedanta Swami, Namane, Namaste, Sarasati Devi, Gauravani Pacharani, Vivasai Sasanivari Vaskachade Satani. 
Vandeham Shri Guru Shri Uttapadakamalam Shri Guru Vaishnavamcha Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raghunatham Vitam Sam Sajivam Sadvaitam Sadvadutam Padijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakam Vitamsha Vanchakalpa Jurubhyas Chakripa Sindhu Vyavicha Padijana Bhavanya Vaishnavamcha Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya It's March 26, 2018, Skype class from Hilo, Hawaii, reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 3, Chapter 29, Explanation of Devotional Service by Lord Kapila, text 36. Etad Bhagavato Rupam Brahmana Paramatmanaha Param Pradhan Purusham Daivam Karma Vichestitam Etat, this Bhagavataha of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, Rupam, Rupam, form, Brahmanaha, of Brahman, Paramatmanaha, of Paramatma. Param, Param. Transcendental. Transcendental Pradhanam, Pradhanam. Chief. Chief Purusham, Purusham. Personality, Personality. Daivam. Daivam Spiritual, Spiritual. Karma Vicheshtitam Whose Activities Translation and Purport by Srila Prabhupada This Purusha, whom the individual soul must approach, is the eternal form of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, who is known as Brahman and Paramatma. He is the transcendental chief personality, and his activities are all spiritual. Purport. In order to distinguish the personality, whom the individual soul must approach, it is described herein that this Purusha, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, is the chief amongst all living entities and is the ultimate form of the impersonal Brahman effulgence and Paramatma manifestation. Since he is the origin of the Brahman effulgence and Paramatma manifestation, he is described herewith as a chief personality. It is confirmed in the Katha Upanishad, Nitya Nityanam. There are many eternal living entities, but he is the chief maintainer. This is confirmed in the Bhagavad Gita also, where Lord Krishna says, Aham Sarvasya Prabhupada, Bhagavad Gita 10.8, quote, I am the origin of everything, including the Brahman effulgence and Paramatma manifestation, unquote. His activities are transcendental, as confirmed in Bhagavad Gita, Janma Karma Chame Divyam, Bhagavad Gita 4.9. The activities and the appearance and disappearance of the Supreme Personality of Godhead are transcendental. They are not to be considered material. Anyone who knows this fact that the appearance, disappearance, and activities of the Lord 
or beyond material activities or material conception is liberated. Yo veti tattvata tvaktvadeham punarjanma, Bhagavad Gita 4.9. Such a person, after quitting his body, does not come back again to this material world, but goes to the Supreme Person. It is confirmed here, purusha purusham vrajet. The living entity goes to the Supreme Personality simply by understanding his transcendental nature and activities. Just to note, when Prabhupada said it is confirmed here, Purusha, Purusham, Vrajet, you may say, well, that's not in this verse, it's from the previous verse. And that one goes to the Supreme Person. Okay, again, Etad Bhagavato Rupam Brahmana Paramatmanaha Param Pradhanam Purusham Daivam Karma Viteshitam. This Purusha, whom the individual soul must approach, is the eternal form of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, who is known as Brahman and Paramatma. He is a transcendental chief personality and his activities are all spiritual. So this verse is a continuation from the previous verse saying that one must approach the Supreme Person and if one does so, one becomes liberated and this verse is an explanation of who that Supreme Person is. So we're going to look particularly at Daivam Karma Vichesh Jitam. Now Prabhupada spends about half the purport on this idea that the Lord's activities, the Lord's karma, is transcendental, is daivam, and Prabhupada refers to the Bhagavad Gita, Janma Karma Chamejivyam Evam Yoveti Tatvata Twaktan Deham Punarjama Naitimam Eti Sorjuna. That if we understand in truth, in Tatvata, in truth, Janma Karma Chamejivyam, we have the same word, divyam, daivam, divyam, that if we know that the Lord's activities and appearance are divine, that knowledge is enough for us not to take birth again, but to attain to the Lord's eternal abode. And that may seem rather amazing, you know, to know, just to know that the Lord's activities are divine, that that's enough. That's enough of a qualification and to be liberated from this world and not impersonal liberation, but actually attainment of the association of the Supreme Personality of God had a return to our original position. So, what do we mean by the Lord's activities? I mean, I think it's a, a major feature of the Vaishnava philosophy that we know something about the Lord's activities. What are they? And, and why is it so hard to understand them? How do people misunderstand them? And how can we understand them? And how is it that if we understand all this, we become liberated? I mean, it sounds like a pretty, a pretty good deal. And so, what are the Lord's activities? You know, in most of the religions that are in the world today in 2018, there's not much knowledge of the Lord's activities. The, most of the religions of the world discuss the Lord's activities only in this material world, and then only to a very limited extent. You know, that the Lord shows up as a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire. and You know, there's really not very much. I mean, it's something about him writing on tablets of stone with his finger, which most of the people in those religions say is just metaphorical, and him speaking to Moses on the top of Mount Sinai, or people who think that Jesus is God. And then they can say, all right, well, the activities of Jesus are the activities of God. But uh, it's, it's not much. It's not much, and... Certainly, there's not any explanation in the, you know, the Islam and Buddhism 
and the various branches of Christianity, Judaism, of the activities of God in his own abode. So very limited knowledge of the activities of God on this planet. No, no knowledge of the activities of God outside of this planet in the universe. I mean, it's a pretty big universe with lots of stars and planets, and, but nothing about what, what God is doing there, and certainly nothing about what God is doing outside of I think one of the most attractive features of the Vaishnava philosophy is that we do explain, well, what does God do? <laughs> you know, what does he look like? What does he do? So there's so many attractive activities, and those activities, I mean, here the word is, is karma, and Krishna describes his own activities as karma. Karma can mean action. Generally, we think of karma in terms of karma kanda or karma yoga, which means fruit of action, action to get some sort of result. But the word karma literally just means action. Of course, many times the Lord's activities are described with another word, and that is lila, or uh, you know, play, pastimes, krida, krida means play. So to engage in play or pastimes. And Srila Prabhupada particularly liked to translate the word lila or krida as pastime. So a pastime is their activities, but they're, they're not serious activities. You know, a pastime is you're playing sports or you're watching sports or you're you know, knitting something it, it, that you don't really need. You know, it's something extra. That, so the Lord's activities are like that. They're all playful, even though they can be called karma in the sense that they involve some sort of action. So, of course, we have information about the lila of Krishna in the spiritual world. It's called the Astakalila lila that Krishna has, although there's no time in the sense of past, present, and future, although it's always present, there's a sequence of events. And so uh, first thing in the morning, Krishna is waking up in the forest with the uh, cowherd girls. And then he goes, he sneaks back into his home early in the morning and there he milks the cows, he wrestles with the cowherd boys, he takes a bath, he has breakfast, and then later in the morning he gathers together with his cowherd friends, and they go, they leave the village with their cows and their calves, and they go into the forest where they play all kinds of games. So Krishna Balaram and their friends are playing games in the forest and taking care of their animals. Not only do they have cows, they have goats, they have buffalo, and of course the a forest itself is full of so many creatures and trees, rivers, and, and so forth. And they decorate themselves with the items in the forest. And then in the middle of the day, Krishna leaves his friends, sneaks away from his friends, and he goes and meets with the cowherd girls again. And they swim in, uh, in the kunds, they swim in the various ponds and lakes, they play various games, and they have water sports, they have holy sports. All, you know, all different kinds of, of games. And then at the end of that time, then Krishna goes back to the cowherd boys, and again he plays with the cowherd boys in the forest, and then later in the afternoon they come home, and again he takes a bath, he changes his clothes, he uh, milks the cows, he has a wonderful dinner, he watches entertainment, and then he goes uh, to bed. And then in the middle of the night, he gets up from bed, he sneaks out of his house, and he goes into the forest at night, where again he meets with the cowherd girls and uh, dances with them, swims in the Yamuna, and so forth. 
So he basically has, you know, in the middle of the night and the middle of the day, he's with the cowherd girls. In the middle of the morning, middle of the afternoon, he's with the cowherd boys. And then in the morning and evening, he's with his parents and the residents of the village. So he has eight times of the day and with the with people in the different relationships with him. He has two times of the day each with people in that relationship. And of course, people who are serving, entities who are serving him and those who are in awe and reverence are with him at various times throughout the day, depending on their, their service. And the Goswamis explains that the Lord in these eight times of the day, he's uh, interacting with every single devotee. So even every blade of grass, every flower, every bird, uh, he's, he's having some interaction with them. And of course, even though one can divide it into eight times of the day, there's no past and future. So in one sense, they're all going on simultaneously. They're all going on in the present. And at the same time, there's some feeling of meeting separation, meeting and separation, meeting and separation. So that's what's going on in Goloka Vrindavan. And Sanatya Goswami even describes that in Goloka Vrindavan, there's some sense of Krishna going to Mathura and returning. And then, of course, there's Krishna's pastimes in Goloka, in Mathura, and in Dwarka, where he's there as the king, and he's uh, also going with the Pandavas. And then in the spiritual world, there's Lord Ramachandra, who has his own planet, and he's there with Sita, and Lakshman, Bharat, Shatrigna, and Hanuman, and Sugriva, and they're running an ideal kingdom. And then the Lord as Narayana, with Lakshmi, with Sri Bhu and Nila, in, uh, in the many, many Vaikuntha planets, and in each Vaikuntha planet, the Lord has a somewhat different mood and there's a perfect kingdom where there's all different beings. I mean, Sanatya Goswami describes all the varieties of, of form of the living beings in the Vaikuntha planet and some resemble the demigods of this planet, some resemble the demons of this planet. And then, of course, the Bhagavatam describes the husbands and wives of the Vaikuntas traveling in their airplanes, glorifying the Lord and basically the perfect uh, peaceful, blissful kingdom. And then we have the pastimes of the Lord in this world. So yesterday we celebrated Ram Navami. Uh, Navami means nine, so it means Ram's appearance on the ninth day of the moon. And of course, Lord Ramachandra's activities are. It, it's interesting, the Bhagavatam says they're as wonderful as those of a baby elephant, which I always thought was interesting. But, you know, we have how Ram and his uh, three brothers appear in the dynasty of Dasarath at the request of the demigods to destroy uh, Ravana. So Ram, is at a young age, is asked by Vishramrita to destroy some demons, Marichi, Maricha and uh, Subahu. He destroys Subahu, but Marichi simply puts it at a distance and he destroys their, their mother, Tadaka who were disturbing all the sages, and then he goes to string the bow of Lord Shiva, which he breaks. And in breaking the bow of Shiva, he wins the hand of Sita and his brothers marry Sita's sisters and cousins. And then he defeats Parasuram and gets the bow of Vishnu. And he returns triumphant to his kingdom, and then there's intrigue, and just before he's to be crowned king, his stepmother extracts an old promise and banishes him to the forest and he goes with his wife and brother, one of his brothers to the forest where there he makes friendship with the tribals and he makes friendship with the sages he vows protection to the sages and he's killing the cannibals and various demons who are harassing the sages 
which eventually brings him in touch with Ravana, the big demon who he had come to earth to destroy, who kidnaps his wife, Sita, and therefore gives Ram a reason to attack Ravana. And then, of course, Ram and Lakshman make friendship with Hanuman and Sugriva and the monkeys, and they build a bridge to Lanka and wage an amazing war where they kill Ravana's brothers and sons like Indrajit and the giant Kumbhakarna, and finally destroy Ravana and install the pious Babishan on the throne and then return to glory in Ayodhya. So we have, you know, these human-like pastimes of Lord Ramachandra and, of course, when Krishna comes to earth and how he appears in Mathura, how he's brought across the Yamuna in secret to Gokula. All the demons he kills in Gokula, Putana, Trinavarta, Agasara, and he exhibits uh, many of the activities of the spiritual world when he's in Gokula. So he's going through a similar eightfold pastimes on this earth as he does in the spiritual world, and just playing with the cowherd boys and being the beloved child of Yasoda and Nanda, and uh, dancing with the gopis and uh, swimming in the Yamuna, and then of course the heartrending time when he goes to Mathura to kill Kamsa and this wonderful kidnapping of Rukmini and marrying of so many uh, queens and a friendship with the Pandavas and the battle of Kurukshetra, the establishment of Dwaraka and so forth. And then so many pastimes in forms that are not human. It says that the Lord appears in so many species. So he appears as Varaha, a gigantic boar. Here in Hawaii, we have wild boar. And one day we saw them uh, in the middle of the day, like a whole family of 12, uh, very fearsome. So this boar whose uh, skin is the Vedic sacrifices, and he was roaring in the sky in a huge form, and went into a celestial ocean at the bottom of the universe, and revived the earth, who was none other than his wife, Bumi, and killed the demon here in Yaka, and of course, in Singadev who appears to be partially a lion and partially a human, who comes out of a pillar. Varaha comes out of the nose of Brahman. Nisingadev comes out of a pillar. And he kills the child abuser Hiranyakashipu, tears him apart. And this uh, ghastly, violent, you know, awesome scene and as the Singadev alone, he kills thousands of soldiers, just like Ram alone killed an army of 10,000 Rakshasas. So we have the, all these incarnations of the Lord, you know, and, and Korma, the huge turtle who swims in the ocean of milk holding Mandara Mountain. Amazing, amazing stories of the Lord's appearance. And some of these don't take place on this planet. I mean, the Singadev appeared on the planet of Indra. Kurma appears in the ocean of milk. Uh, Varaha, of course, he had to do with the earth, but he wasn't really on the earth. He was all within the whole universe. So many of these incarnations, or uh, Vamandev is on the planet of Indra. He's born to Kasyapa and Aditi, who are on a higher planet, and then he comes to Bali, sacrifice on the planet of Indra. So we have these descriptions of the activities of the Lord in his own abode in a variety of forms on this earth, particularly as Krishna and Rama, of course, also like Narayan incarnate here. 
And then we have the descriptions of the Lord's pastimes in different parts of this universe, on different planets. And, of course, people may misunderstand these activities. So on the one hand, you can say, wow, you know, we, we actually know what the Lord does. In, in most religions on the earth today, when they say, wow, you get to go to heaven, I know, what does that mean? What does that mean? Like, you know, here we're told if we understand these spiritual activities, we get to go to the Lord's abode. We get to go to the ultimate heaven, so to speak. But in most religions, you're told to go to heaven. I mean, what does that mean? I, mean, I just remember as a very new member of the Hare Krishna movement distributing Prabhupada's books in O'Hare Airport, I'm meeting these Christians who said, well, we're going to heaven. And I'm like, well, what will you do there? And I was like, the same thing we're doing here. And I said, were you going to watch TV? <laughs> And they kind of looked at me, you know, they, they really don't know. They don't really have an idea of what, what happens in the Lord's abode. What does the Lord do? And you can say, well, how wonderful that we know what the Lord does. Well, yes, but when we describe what the Lord does, it's going to sound so fantastic that a lot of people will just reject it out of hand. And this is kind of the irony. All right, well, we can finally actually tell you what the Lord does. And then we tell you, and you, well, I don't believe it. You know, that's all fairy tales. It's all mythology. And this is, I'm sure the fact that people are so dismissive or disrespectful of the Lord's activities is one of the main reasons why so many of these religions in Kali Yuga don't have any information about them. You know, we're told that it's an offense to preach the glories of the holy name to the faithless. So you, you have the same problem with the Lord's Lila. And that uh, you try to explain these Leela to people and they'll just dismiss it out of hand as, as some kind of a fairy tale. You know, well, how, how is that possible? You know, you have some boar that's covering the sky and picking up the earth with his tusk. You know, it's like, what? <laughs> uh, how, how could that be real? And, and, and then not only do people misunderstand them as just made up, as just some kind of imagination, but people will criticize the Lord's activities as if he were an ordinary person. Now, people criticize Krishna dancing with the gopis and saying, well, you know, he's just some super lusty, immoral person. I think there was one basketball star who claimed to have had uh, relations with like 10 or 20,000 women. So, you know, when, when Krishna has 16,000 wives and so many thousands of, of girlfriends, people might say, oh, he's just like that. He's, he's some really exploitive, womanizing playboy. And, and they may look at him like that. You know, he's just eager for the, the kingdom. and he's, you know, they, they look at, at Krishna from their own perspective. I mean, in general, we do this. We, we understand others and we interpret others according to our own position. And this is very unfortunate because when people see the Lord's pastimes like that, then they're not really able to appreciate him. You know, it's, it's really sad. I'm sure that we've all had this kind of experience where we do something wonderful and we, we share, want to share that with people. <laughs> You know, naturally, when you do something wonderful, this was Arjuna's point about winning the battle. He's like, what's the point of winning the battle? Because all my relatives will be dead. I won't be able to share my glorious victory with them. So, (coughs) 
So naturally we want to share with people what we do, but if we share it with people and then they just minimize it, it's very painful. Oh, that, well, that isn't such a big deal. Anybody could do that. <laughs> and we, we worked hard for weeks to practice, you know, and we really got it down and we're really proud of it. And, oh, that's not a big deal. You know, anybody could do that. And then and we just feel defeated. So Krishna also feels bad. Actually, it's interesting. Prabhupada says that when the Mayavadis criticize the world as false, that Krishna is depressed. He said, just like if you saw a beautiful garden and you said it's all false, the garden would feel depressed. So these are the, the main criticisms of the Lord's Leela. Either they just say that it's, it's some made-up fairy tales, or they say that, uh, okay, it really did happen, Krishna really did appear on this earth and, and do at least some of these things, uh, but this just shows that he's some uh, ordinary sense gratifier. Or they have some combination. They'll say, well, these are you know, exaggerations of some you know, a real historical person, ordinary real historical person. And as far as the first item that these things are exaggerated, so we've discussed many times before that even if you have a very mechanistic picture of the universe, there's still going to be supernatural and amazing descriptions. The mechanistic, atheistic scientists who talk about the creation of the world from nothing that the universe has come from nothing. Well, that's fantastic right there. How does nothing produce something? <laughs> and, and so many somethings. You know, you've got so many different kinds of trees and so many different kinds of apples. I mean, it just... It, it's, who, who is going to accept that as not being supernatural? We have no experience. First of all, we have no experience of nothing. Nature pours a vacuum. And second of all, we have no experience of nothing producing something. It's, it's, it's as fantastic and as supernatural as some four-handed or eight-handed blue person riding around on the back of an eagle. You know, one is not more supernatural than another, frankly. So the, as soon as you get into these higher realms of, of math and science, I remember Sadaputta saying that in the higher realms of mathematics, the discussions of mathematics have very little to do with our, our lived experience. And they all, it, it, it's all a description of supernatural. And then another point about the supernatural is there's so many uh, things going on on this earth planet today which cannot be explained at all by the mechanistic atheistic scientists. Even if you look at the subtle platform, you know, psychic powers and telekinesis and being able to see the future, and those sort of things have absolutely no explanation in, in terms of mechanistic atheistic science. It just it doesn't comport with their worldview in the slightest they're all supernatural things. And there are so many behaviors even of living beings which are not explained. I'm sure you all know that uh, even, mo- even when modern medicine works, often the medical science is not aware how it works. You know, there'll be some medication that has some wonderful effect on a disease, but the, the way in which that medicine affects the disease may not be understood by the, med- by the scientists and the medical doctors themselves. It's actually quite common. And many of the functions of the body are not understood. There's something amazing and supernatural. And as far as seeing the activities of the Lord on this planet through our ordinary lens, I think in general, as I said, we tend to see others through our ordinary lens. And someone who's a little intelligent and introspective can see that 
it's not va- it's not a valid way to evaluate someone else. Is just well, if I was doing that, that's how I would be feeling. Isn't isn't valid even when discussing another ordinary person. So, what is the real understanding of the pastimes of the Lord? Well, here it says that He's the chief. He's the chief. Pradana. He's the chief. So, this is the main definition of God. There's no being equal or greater than Him. And not only Hamsarvasya Prabhupada, Matasaram Prabhupada, or Mata Parataram Nanyat, Kinchidasti Jananjala. So, He is the supreme. That is the very, that is the definition of God. And not only is He the supreme, uh, but everyone is included in Him. Everyone is His part and parcel. And everyone is in everyone and everything is included in him, as he demonstrated practically when showing the universal form. So because he is the chief and everything is included in him and he's created and manifest and butva butva puliate, everything is destroyed by him, everything rests in him. Therefore, he has everything and he is everything. Now, if somebody has everything and is everything, then that means he doesn't need anything. So we have, you know, very rich people on this planet who can buy whatever they want and don't need anything, but they don't have everything. But with the Lord, he really has everything, and as Rukmini says to him, he is everything. Therefore, he has no need. He has no need. You know, our activities are done out of need. So I need food, I need sleep, uh, I need uh, love, I need relationships, I need, I need so many things. Now, there's, there's lists one can make, the psychologists have made, of human needs. And a need is defined as something which, if you don't get it, there'll be some negative consequence. It's different from a want. You know, with a need, there is definitely a negative. You don't get food, there's a negative consequence. Whether you want food or not is, is irrelevant. But Krishna has no needs. The Supreme has no needs. And therefore, the motive for his activities are completely different from the motive for a conditioned soul's activities. Now, in one sense, the soul also doesn't have needs. The liberated soul is Atmarama and Atakama. So the liberated soul has the qualities of fulfilling their own desires and being fully satisfied in and of themselves. But of course, the liberated soul is Atmarama and Atakama when they realize their connection with the Supreme, who is the Supreme Atmarama and Atakama. When as soon as the soul has an illusion of separation then, as Prabhupada says, our opulence in Krishna book prayers, the personified Vedas, then our opulences become basically extinct. We become, it's like we can't access them. It's something like you have money in the bank, but you, you know, your account is, is inaccessible for some reason. I don't know, maybe it's Sunday and the bank is closed. I don't know, you can't get to your, to your money. So we have these opulences, but in our illusion of separation, we can't access them. We can't really use them. So we have this feeling of being separate and being incomplete and having all these needs. Whereas the liberated soul in connection with the Supreme and the Lord himself has no needs. Now, if you can think of even in our ordinary conditioned state, if I am dealing with someone or doing something to fulfill my needs, 
then more or less my activities are exploitive. I am trying to get something that I need from an object or from another living being. At, to some extent, the expense of that object or other living being. Now, I may try to compensate the object or the other living being. I may try to give back what I'm taking, uh, but even so, I'm concerned with my own taking. I may want to take fairly, uh, but my main interest is my own taking, is fulfilling my needs. And if I'm not able to get my needs met, if things happen that I don't want to happen or things don't happen that I do want to happen, uh, then I become uh, angry and frustrated and sad and, and so forth. Uh, I may blame the other person. I may blame the situation and, and on and on and on. Which means that the whole basis for my behavior is again that I have a need that must be met. But we also have circumstances where we deal with objects or living beings where we don't have a particular need to meet at all. Where in that particular circumstance our needs are actually completely satisfied and we're giving simply to give. So we all have these kind of uh, situations where we give something purely to give and where our, or almost purely, I suppose one could say so, purely, and where our satisfaction is in simply in the happiness of the person to whom we're giving. All right, that's, that's all. There's, there's nothing in it for us directly. It is only something for us vicariously through the other person's happiness. Our happiness is coming through the other person's happiness, and we have no interest in getting some happiness directly. So we all have some experience of doing this. Um, to whatever extent it's impure and mixed with ex exploitation, we have a problem. But that mood of being already full and giving simply for the happiness of the other is the mood of all of Krishna's activities and all of the activities of Krishna's pure devotees. Because they're already full, they're already satisfied. Whatever they're doing is for the happiness of others. And their happiness is increasing by the happiness of others. Krishna is having his pastime simply to please his devotees, and when his devotees are pleased, he is pleased. The devotees are in the pastime simply to please Krishna, and when Krishna is pleased, the devotees are pleased. So there's, there's real, that's love. That's love. The devotees and Krishna are, in, are doing these activities simply as a way of expressing love to increase the happiness of the other. They're not really trying to accomplish something. Even if you say, well, Krishna's trying to accomplish killing a demon, but he could kill a demon just by a, a millisecond of a thought. He doesn't need to have all these heroic activities of building stone bridges and pummeling the guy in the wrestling arena. He doesn't, he doesn't need to do any of that. Picking up an earth on his tusks. and He's doing that simply because it brings joy to the devotees. And the devotees are doing it because it brings joy to the love, to the Lord. And this is in, in what way the Lord's activities are divyam or divine. This is what we mean by they're divine. We don't just mean that they're divine in the sense that, you know, there's all these mystic powers. Because the residents of Siddhaloka have all the mystic powers. It doesn't make their activities divine. The fact that Krishna can do all sorts of cool supernatural things like lift a mountain on the little finger of his left hand or defeat 10,000 soldiers single-handedly, that's not what makes it divine. What makes it divine is that there's no exploitation. It's only love, and therefore it's only play. There's, there's nothing to accomplish 
except the happiness of everybody involved, the joy of everyone involved. That, that's all. And in fact, understanding the leelas is not a matter of memorizing the plot. And I'm sure any of anyone who's spent uh, more than a, a modicum of time with the scriptures will find that the same pastime is often told quite differently in terms of the details of the plot by different sages and devotees. And you're like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. How could this have happened if that had happened? And to some extent, that's because these pastimes are occurring eternally over and over again, but with different varieties each time of detail. But another, another reason is that each devotee perceives the pastime somewhat differently according to their particular relationship with the Lord. But ultimately, it's also because those details are not the point. Those details of the blot are simply the frame for an exchange of love. The point of the pastimes is the bhava, is the mood, not the, the plot. So maybe we can understand now why just the fact of understanding them, just the fact of understanding these activities, as Prabhupada reflects here, it says, the living entity goes to the Supreme Personality simply by understanding his transcendental nature and activities. So just understanding the nature of the Lord activities brings us to perfection. Why is that? Well, it conquers our envy and it, it conquers our fear and our hesitation. As soon as we understand that all of the Lord, actually understand in truth, as soon as we really get it, that all of the Lord's activities are only loving, they're only beneficial, they're only kind, they're only fun, they're only joyful, that there's no exploitation, then as soon as we understand that, we surrender immediately. It's, it's a concomitant factor. It, it's, it happens simultaneously. Just like it says in Ardhamuni when he died, you know, he gave up his body and got his spiritual body simultaneously. So as soon as we understand, all of the Lord's activities are based just on this playful reciprocation of love. Because, other, you know, we're not, we're envious of the Lord because we're thinking, oh, he's exploiting and that's not fair and I should be able to be the controller. And we're fearful of the Lord. I don't want to surrender to him. Maybe he'll take everything away from me and he'll mistreat me and how can I trust him? And, you know, these are our hesitancies. I got to look out for myself. You know, these are our hesitancies. And as soon as we have this understanding that the Lord is really, as Prabhupada says in 1515, purport the Lord is all good, the Lord is all merciful. As soon as we get that, then immediately we surrender. I mean, if you have the supreme person who is everything, has everything, is the most powerful, is my supreme friend, who's offering to give me all protection, who's offering to give me relief from all sinful activities, and I become convinced, actually convinced, not just intellectually convinced, but emotionally convinced that all the Lord's activities are on the transcendental platform of only giving, then immediately I surrender. And as soon as I surrender and as soon as I get in the mood of service, then I am already with the Lord even though I'm apparently in this material world. And there's no question of having to take another birth because there's no impetus to take another so therefore, these literatures about the Lord's pastimes are so important. 
Srila Prabhupada put great emphasis into translating these books, great emphasis into having these books distributed, having them read, having them studied. And we should be hearing about the Lord's activities and meditating about the Lord's activities in this world, in, as the cre- creating this world, destroying this world, manifesting in this world, in the spiritual world, on the other planets, all levels of activities. Well, we should be meditating on them as much as we possibly can. And, and not only meditating on the plot sequence, but on the mood of those, of the Lord and the devotees and the ph- philosophical understanding. Srila Prabhupada particularly was expert at weaving together the philosophical understanding and the story in, in books like Krishna Book. And gradually, gradually, we gain more and more understanding and more and more faith. And as we gradually and proportionally, as Prabhupada said, gain this understanding and faith, we let go of our hesitancy, we let go of our fear, we let go of our ego. And then before we know it, we find ourselves, wow, you know, I'm starting to feel like I'm in the spiritual world, even walking around here, Prabhupada said to the great devotee, there is no material world. One sees that even the, the Lord's pastimes of creating this world are done in a mood of joyfulness and, and love. So questions, comments, corrections, additions, subtractions, chastisements... I want to be the first to say that was a brilliant class. Oh, thank you, Vidal Kumara. Okay, that's a good thing. Not so easy to understand this uh, intrus in Tatra. To, that, that one understands the Lord's activities and you explained it so beautifully uh, you know because it can be taken theoretically you know oh okay I've uh, reached uh, 4.9 in Bhagavad Gita I accept Lord's uh, activities are transcendental I'm going back to that here. Yeah, well, the evidence that we really accept that it's transcendental is that we surrender, because I say it happens simultaneously. And no, it's, it's not so easy, therefore it's gradual and proportional. You know, the people for whom it's really easy are young children. And therefore, Prabhupada said, nice. simple for the simple. Uh, you know, nice. what I see is that, it, in one sense, young children have a big disadvantage with spiritual life. They can't control their senses and their mind very well, for example. Um, but little children have a natural faith in things that are supernatural and wonderful. It's just like the natural ability of a human child, which is, of course, exploited in modern society by getting children to believe in Santa Claus and Superman and, and things like that. You know, it's, it's really unfortunate. And then this natural faith of the human child, which is putting Santa Claus and Superman, when they find out there's no Santa Claus and there's no Superman, then they tend to lose faith in general. It's, it's, a, it's a terrible, terrible thing. But, uh, you know... Yeah, they've been lied to. So the... I mean, I just see that one of the main ways to have people get this, this understanding and faith is to teach the stories of Krishna's pastimes properly to children. 
and that's something I've dedicated a lot of my time and energy to doing, and I know you have also with your books. As far as, you know, we cynical adults, <laughs> we over-intelligent, you know, having experienced so many things in the world, uh, cynical, doubting adults. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a journey to really have that faith and to, to confront our, our inner doubts and say in the beginning, oh, yeah, 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 I accept this, that's all cool. And then as we go on saying, well, wait a minute, there's, do I really believe that Krishna is only loving? Do I, can I really trust him? Can I really trust that all of his activities are, are without any kind of exploitive motive? But, you know, you see that it does work. It does work. We do gradually get that faith. Rupert uh, Sheldrake's famous line is, give me one miracle yes. and I'll explain the rest. Yes. Right? Yes. So, so we should touch on that. You touched on that with the medicine. That we don't know how this is working. It's working. There's, uh, if somebody should make a list of stuff like that or, you know, something from nothing, you know, that's magic or... You know, it's all supernatural. So there's an, a lot of things like that. that you Absolutely. Can Absolutely. To make people understand that, you know, it's not all uh, a one, two, three, that, every, you know, that we understand everything or, or that, you know, everything is explainable. That's right. That's right. Because the, the mechanistic atheistic scientists, not all scientists are mechanistic, mechanistic atheists, but the mechanistic atheist scientists want to present things that they have a very logical, rational, improved explanation for everything, and it's only us primitive religionists who are hanging on because we're attached to tradition and childish explanations to things that are supernatural. That's how it's being presented to the public. The reality is that every explanation of the world relies on the supernatural. Every. You cannot explain the world without reliance on something fantastic and supernatural. And a lot of what's going on, putting aside even the creation of the world and the creation of the species, even in our everyday life, there's so many, there's so many supernatural things that the scientists may use, the scientists and technicians may use, but they do not understand. And, uh, you know, it, re it resists their explanations. We have a, a question here from Ramananda in the chat box. If I had all my needs met completely, wouldn't that mean I would no longer have any wants either? If the Lord is everything and therefore has no need, is he still in want? Well, if you're going to... In want means, again, the same as needs. Uh, I, again, I'm going to say that I'm sure we have an experience of at least some a limited situation where I am not acting to fulfill a need, where I am acting simply to make another living being happy because I choose to do that without any direct benefit for myself at all. Now, we may not be doing that 100% purely. There may be some kind of psychological benefit of, well, you know, in the mode of goodness of, I, I feel that I'm a nice person. So it may be very difficult for under, us to understand how that could be absolutely pure without even a contamination of goodness where we have that kind of inner sense, kind of that inner congratulations that we give ourselves that, wow, I did something nice, I did something wonderful, I am in balance, I am in harmony, I'm a good person, that, that inner sattva ego. 
but still we can have some idea we can have some idea you know that I, I help somebody I comfort somebody I give something to somebody I do something for somebody when there's absolutely nothing in it for me I had no need to fulfill you know I didn't even have a need to fulfill a friendship or or anything you know I, I had enough friends and I have enough everything I didn't didn't need anything from this interaction so I mean one of the uh, interesting story in that regard there um, I remember reading it there was a time I used to read a lot of near-death experiences and one of them was this guy who uh, he had a, a life review out of his body and the higher beings reminded him of one time when he was a child that his family was having a picnic and they were walking back at the end of the picnic from the picnic site to their car and the child was carrying water and he he saw a little bit out of the way of his of the direct route from the picnic site to the car a tree that looked like it was wilting a little a little plant that looked like it was wilting and he thought oh that tree is thirsty that tree needs it was a very young child you know let me give the tree some water and so he went off the direct path and he took the water that was left from the picnic that he was carrying and he poured it onto the tree to make the tree happy and when he had this life review, these higher beings were saying that one act you did was the most important thing you did in your whole life because it was, it was just out of pure love. It was out of pure affection. So, you know, we have some experiences like that where we have no need to fulfill. Uh, none of our needs are being met. We're not acting out of a need. We're not acting because we want something. We, we, want, we simply want to please someone else. And we want to please someone else for no other reason than to please someone else. <laughs> there isn't another reason involved. And uh, whatever satisfaction we get is due to their happiness. And this is especially true if it's free from the satisfaction of I'm a good person. But if it's, if it's only the satisfaction of their happiness. And Prabhupada talks about such a mood is obvious with the mother of a very young baby. So, you know, a, a tiny little baby who doesn't even smile at their parents yet, you know, who really isn't giving anything to the parents. The little baby is hardly aware that the parents are separate individuals. And, and yet the, the parents are, are taking care of the child simply to make the child happy and simply to make the child comfortable. And when they see that the child is, is comfortable and the child is fed and the child is happy, that is their happiness. So these things give us a little idea of what is motivating Krishna to act. That what motivates Krishna to, ha- to act is the happiness of his parts and parcels. And he wants them to be happy simply because he wants them to be happy. He doesn't require the happiness of his parts and parcels for his own happiness, which is already ar- always expanding anyway. Krishna's happiness is already expanding. Now, when Krishna does things that make the living beings happy, that, ex- that does expand his own happiness, but he doesn't need to make the living entities happy to expand his own happiness. It's simply love. And it's nothing else but love. And therefore, it's called causeless. The cause is love, but how is love a cause? It, it, it's not a cause in terms of, of needs or, or having some sort of deficiency. It's a, it's a want. I want to make you happy. Uh, 
that's not a want for myself. And so it's entirely, completely selfless. There's, there's not a tinge of selfishness in it because there's, there's no need for there to be a tinge of selfishness in it. And when the devotees are connected with the Lord, they also have this mood of the Lord. And so the devotees' activities are also beyond uh, selflessness. Yeah, not so easy to understand. As, you know. Therefore, if we understand this immediately, we are liberated. So Alakshmi is asking, when one is asked, what would you like from this? That like would be selfless or shut. Well, it depends what it is you want. I mean, it requires some honesty. You know, I think that when we're new to Krishna consciousness, when we're asked, you know, what do you want from this? What are you, what are you doing this for? What's your motive? We generally lie to ourselves. And we say, oh, I just want to please my guru. I just want to please God. I just want to please the devotees. And that's a bunch of poppycock. You know, we, we really are being motivated by wanting to fulfill our, the needs that appear real to us in our illusion. You know, we have this illusion of being separated from Krishna, and the illusion of being separated from Krishna produces a sense of needs. It produces a sense of emptiness. And then we seek to fulfill those needs by exploiting the Lord's energy separate from him. So we may fool ourselves that I, I don't have any, uh, I'm not trying to exploit anybody, but that's not true. And as we chant Hare Krishna, as we progress in Krishna consciousness, we start to become aware of what's motivating our behavior. And as we become aware of what's motivating our behavior, and we become disgusted with those motives, then and we become in, entranced by the whatever we get, whatever faith and realization we get in the motives of the Lord and the great devotees, then we gradually let go of our ill motives and we, we gradually embrace our, our own innate pure motives. Which happens as we realize our fullness with, in connection with the Lord. We start realizing, you know, that yoga kshema vaham yaham that Krishna's taking, we don't really have any needs. Near yoga kshema apmavan. Give up all anxieties for gain and safety and be established in the self. Why? Yoga kshema vaham yaham. Because we're part of Krishna and he's already taken care of us. We really don't have any needs to worry about at all. But this is, it's, I mean, it could happen instantaneously, but it's generally a gradual, a gradual thing that we understand. So we could take one more, and then I have a program here. Anybody else? To mute a few people. Sorry about that. Anybody else have any questions or comments? Okay, thank you very much. Shiva Prabhupada Ki Jai. Thank you, sir. Thank you.